There's a book by Erwin Yalom, who was a psychiatrist at Stanford, called Love's Executioner. This is how he opens the book. I do not like to work with patients who are in love. Perhaps it is because of envy. I too crave enchantment. Perhaps it is because love and psychotherapy are fundamentally incompatible. The good therapist fights darkness and seeks illumination, while romantic love is sustained by mystery and crumbles upon inspection. I hate to be love's executioner. The question I would like to discuss tonight is whether there is a kind of love that doesn't crumble upon inspection, that is compatible with and actually enhances illumination. Is there some difference between the enchantment of falling in love and that quality of our being when we're living in love? What is the difference between those two? In our lives, we may have met some people who have been outstanding in some way as embodying that quality of living in love. For me, two of the teachers that I have met have embodied this so profoundly and have been very inspiring in terms of seeing what's possible. One is someone we'll probably be mentioning from time to time during the retreat, a woman teacher who died recently. Her name was Deepama. She lived in Calcutta. She was an amazing person, very simple, a lot of suffering in her life. She also had this tremendous capacity for unconditional love. The other person who stands out in my mind and my experience, you're probably familiar with, is the Dalai Lama. You know, if you met him or seen him uh, you know, in interviews, he's quite amazing. His being radiates kindness, radiates compassion. And there may be others, you know, people we come across in our lives who somehow have this quality that when we're with them, we feel like we are the most important person in the world. Not because of who we are, but because of the fact that we are. Now, and that's how these people relate. Because we are, because we're living beings. We get bathed in this quality of love. This quality in the Pali language, this quality of mind, of heart, is called metta, or loving-kindness, loving-care. Metta is a great generosity of the heart. 
It's both a great generosity and also something that is very, very simple. It's the simple wish that we have for others and ourselves, for all beings to be happy. It's expressed in the wish, may you be happy. And what's so unique about this quality of metta, of loving-kindness, what's so unique about this wish, may you be happy, is that it is not seeking any self-benefit. It's not seeking anything back. The simple wish, may you be happy. There's a wonderful story which illustrates this quality of method told of Ryokan, who was an 18th century Zen monk and poet and hermit. And he, wrote, he wrote a lot of wonderful poems in Japan and haiku. There's one story which is told of him. He was out in the countryside and it was a sunny day in the winter but the sun was shining and it was rather warm and so he began to pick all the light out of his robes out of his robe you know, he just put the light out on a rock to sun themselves so <laughs> it's really extraordinary it said that at the end of the day he took them off the rock and put them back in his robe <laughs> we may not all reach that level of loving kindness <laughs> not even sure we want to aspire to that. <laughs> but it's a rather striking example. <laughs> the characteristic quality of metta, of loving care, loving kindness, is a softening of the mind and heart. That's what happens when we're filled with this goodwill. It softens us. It makes our mind and heart very pliable. We get filled, filled with feelings of benevolence. We get filled with feelings of goodwill. It's this quality of metta which arises in us and which we can practice and develop, which seeks the benefit, it seeks the welfare, it seeks the happiness of all beings. And it's precisely because of the pliability and the softness of this feeling of love that it becomes the ground, becomes the basis of wisdom. Because when our minds and hearts are soft, are pliable, what that means is that we're less reactive, we're less impatient with difficulty. And because we're less reactive and less impatient, we're able to be in situations, sometimes quite difficult situations, and not rush in with the reactive judgmental mind. There's actually space there to exercise some discriminating wisdom. We see what is the skillful thing to do here, what is unskillful. Precisely because 
our hearts are softer and pliable and less reactive, we see more clearly. Out of that clarity, we're able to make wise choices. From wise choices, what comes back to us is more happiness, more metta. And so we're on this spiral upward. Metta gives us space, ease, that space and ease give us clarity. The clarity allows for wisdom. Wisdom allows wise choice. Wise choice brings more happiness, more metta. It's a nice way to live. The beauty for me of the Buddha's teachings, the beauty and the power, is that they're not simply something to admire in others. It's not that, you know, having met wonderful teachers like Deepama, Dalai Lama, or others, or other people in our lives, it's not that we see these qualities in other people and say, oh yes, that's very nice, that's admirable. The power of the teachings is we see that we can develop these qualities in ourselves. We need to develop them in ourselves. Thich Nhat Hanh, who, as most of you know, is a wonderful Vietnamese meditation master and poet and peace activist and quite a remarkable being, he said, practicing Buddhism is a clever way to enjoy life. (laughs) Happiness is available. Please help yourself to it. Really, that's what we're all doing here learning how to enjoy life, to help ourselves to happiness, not only for ourselves, but also to benefit others. It's not difficult to recognize the benevolent power of metta, of loving care. I think we can all understand that this is a great force of purity in our mind and in the world. But many times, even though we recognize it, there are many times when we may feel it lacking in our lives, when we don't feel full of metta, when we don't feel full of loving-kindness, you know, when our hearts are not open and our minds are not spacious. In these times, in these situations, what is it that's going on? Why is it that we close down? Why is it that metta, loving-kindness, is not flowering? There are two very strong forces in the mind, two powerfully conditioned tendencies, which obscure and cover and push aside the feeling of love. And it becomes necessary for us to understand what these two forces are because we need to see them clearly. We need to understand how they're working. We need to understand how we get involved and caught by them in our own lives so that we can see through them so we're no longer trapped or caught or identified with them. The first of these obscuring or 
obscuring forces. It's called the near enemy of metta. I mean, the Buddhist psychology, perhaps many of you are familiar with it, it's, the Buddhist psychology is called the Abhidhamma. And it's a very detailed and systematic analysis of the mind and consciousness and mental states. And it's a very sophisticated understanding of how our minds are working. In the Abhidhamma, or Buddhist psychology, the phrase, the term near enemy, means a quality or mind state that looks like something else, that masquerades as something else, but is actually quite different. So there's a near enemy of metta, something that looks like metta, it looks like love. We get deceived into thinking it's love, and actually it's not. The near enemy of metta, of loving-kindness, is desire, is craving. And when we look at this, investigate it, we can really see the difference. Metta, or loving-kindness, is a giving. It's a generosity of the heart. It's a gift of a loving feeling. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. It's an energy going out as a gift. Desire or craving is a wanting. It's a taking of something. And it could be a wanting of anything. There could be a wanting or a desire for fulfillment, for acceptance, even a wanting for love. That desire, that wanting, is very different than the feeling of metta. Loving-kindness doesn't want anything in return. Desire does. But when desire or the wanting mind comes masquerading as love, it gets very confusing for us. Because it's often difficult to see the true nature of desire. We confuse this feeling of metta, of loving, we confuse this with desire because in both, in both states, there is a movement towards someone or some situation. We feel that being drawn to. And that's true both in metta and in desire. And in both, there might be a great feeling of delight or pleasure. So it gets confusing. We may have these feelings and we don't know what's what. We don't actually see them clearly. But with metta, when there's this movement of the heart towards a person or a situation, it's with the simple wish, may you be happy. That's the expression of metta, of love. With desire, we go towards someone or towards a situation wanting something back. And that is a critical difference. 
if we learn to pay attention both in our meditation practice and in situations in the world, this difference becomes strikingly clear. I'll give you a few examples. It came up quite strongly for me in doing the metta practice, and Sharon alluded to this last night. I was doing the metta practice, just as you are, intensively, all day long. And instead of seeing each phrase as a gift, as an expression of that loving feeling, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you live in safety, may you be free, Instead of seeing each phrase simply as a gift of the heart, what I would find myself doing is checking back, how am I doing? Am I getting concentrated? Am I feeling loving enough? And so most of my effort was not actually in cultivating metta. It was really in a desire for something. I want something out of this. Now, I thought that this is bad, but it's confusing. We're, we're mixing up two quite different states. One is the purity of the loving wish, and the other is this near enemy of metta, which is desire, which is a wanting, and it detracts. It actually weakens the force of love in us. So as you're doing the practice, be watchful of this. It's a common tendency. I think at different times many of you probably experience it. See if you can drop back. When you recognize that this is happening, drop back into the spirit. Why we're doing this is to express this wish of love, not for what we're getting. And you'll see that it changes the feeling tone of your practice. There are situations in the world that come up where we can also confuse these two states of desire and love and see they're really quite different things. I had one situation happen to me, this was quite a few years ago. I was visiting a friend in western Massachusetts. I lived out in the country, going for a walk through the woods, I passed this house and there was this little dog running around. The dog was quite uh, aggressive. And it was barking, and not not a friendly bark, but quite an aggressive bark and running up to me and snapping. So as I'm walking past this dog and it's doing its thing, I'm going, be happy, be happy, be happy, be happy. And it came up and bit me. (laughs) And it was perfect. (laughs) Because obviously, even though I was saying, be happy, be happy, mouthing the words of metta, it wasn't metta at all. (laughs) I really wasn't particularly wanting it to be. I was 
saying be happy, but meaning stay away. <laughs> you know, it was that confusion of the feeling of loving kindness with really wanting something for myself. It's two very different things. Sometimes they come together. Sometimes in the very same act, we have both feelings. And this is, again, another story from my early days in India when I was practicing. Those of you who have been there know the omnipresent situation uh, of beggars. You know, and it's, it's a reality there that everybody who's living there has to deal with in some way or another. And of course, being a Westerner, no matter how little money you know, one has, one is in an infinitely better situation than they are. And so there's, one is always up against that. I was at the bazaar one day just buying some fruit, and there was this little beggar boy who came up and was holding his hand out. And I had just finished buying some oranges. And the boy came out, and I, I had a genuine feeling of metta, of loving kindness towards the kid. So I took one of the oranges and I gave it to him. And he just walked away. And in that moment, I saw this place in my mind, just as the most subtle expectation of something in return, just a smile or a nod or an acknowledgement that I had given him, but nothing. <laughs> I had given him the orange and he walked away. And again, it, it just reveals something about the difference between that feeling of metta which doesn't want anything in return just an act of goodwill, of good feeling, and that other part of the mind of wanting, of desire. When we see the distinction clearly, it becomes so obvious the difference in the feeling state. I think it's is very insightful and freeing for us when we can begin to disentangle these two. When we can see clearly and distinguish clearly between them. So that we're not mixing them up and we're not confusing them. Not thinking we're practicing metta when we're really saying, stay away, don't bite. Because when we can see the difference clearly and understand our own minds you know, with, that, with that degree of clarity, what happens is that we begin to see what conditions, what mind states follow from each of these feelings because they lead to very different places. Where does fear come? Where does fear come from? Where does possessiveness come from? Where does insecurity come from? Does it come from metta or does it come from desire? Which of these two feelings in our lives is the basis for so many of our projections on other people and subsequent disappointments. Where does that 
quite common pattern come from? Does it come from the feeling of goodwill, or does it come from the feeling of desire, of wanting something? We can see this. This is not a question of believing anything. We need to look for ourselves if we want to understand happiness in our lives and suffering. We want to understand the conditions for each of those. Now, which of these feelings of metta, loving-kindness, or desire, which of these feelings leads us or brings us a quality of peace, a quality of contentment, a certain quality of fulfillment? It's important to look. It's important to see this. One aspect of the greatness of metta, of loving-kindness, is that it makes no distinction between beings. Desire is always for a limited number of beings. Now, we may desire one person, maybe we desire two people or three people, maybe sequentially, maybe all at once. (laughs) But I don't think there's anybody capable of desiring everyone in the world. Desire doesn't have that capacity. It doesn't have that capability. By nature, it is always limited. Unlike desire, and it is an amazing quality when you stop to think of it, that metta has the capacity to embrace all beings. We can have goodwill. We can have good wish. We can have benevolent feelings towards all beings without exception. This feeling of metta has that capacity. It has that potential. why the Buddha called it. There are many, many descriptive names for it, but the boundless state or the limitless state. It's the expression of that feeling to everyone. May you be free of suffering. May you be happy. This feeling need not be limited in any way at all. And unlike desire, (coughs) metta, or loving-kindness, does not easily change into ill-will. Whereas with desire, we know how easily it changes into ill-will. We desire, 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 when something changes, problems. Metta does not change so easily into ill will precisely because it is not dependent on people or situations being a certain way.
It comes from our own generosity of the heart. It's not coming because of conditions. It's coming from in ourselves. I had a such a powerful example of this as I was doing the metta practice for the first time. I was in India, and you haven't reached this place in the practice yet, but we'll get be getting to it in a few days. It was when I started doing metta towards the category of neutral people. And when my teacher first introduced that, I said, well, you know, find a neutral person and start sending the metta. I had a hard time, not so much because I had reactions about everybody, the very notion of a neutral person seemed so foreign to me. I thought, what does that mean, a neutral person? So my teacher said, well, you know, there's this old gardener at the monastery where I was staying. Do it, do it towards him. And it was shocking to me to realize that there was a person who I saw every single day, many times a day. He could have been a telephone pole. I had no relation, no relationship at all. To he was really a neutral person. So that itself was shocking. I, not only him, there are lots of people in the world that could have been telephone calls. So then I started doing the matter. You know, day after day, hour after hour, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you live in safety, may you be free. And all of a sudden, this person started becoming my love object. (laughs) And every time I saw him, I would feel this tremendous wave of warm, generous, loving feeling. He didn't change. He probably didn't even know that this was going on. (laughs) But the lesson was so profound because I saw that how I felt about him and likewise about anybody, did not depend on him. It depended only on myself. So this is tremendously empowering. When we stop thinking that how we feel depends on the other person, that's a giving away of a basic power that we have. The great beauty of this practice, and I hope that you will get a taste of it over these next days, is that nothing lies outside of its sphere. Nothing and no one. This this idea is expressed very beautifully in a, a Zen haiku. By Isa, who is a, a great poet, in the cherry blossom shade, there is no such thing as a stranger. And that's the feeling, that's the quality of metta. In the cherry blossom shade, there is no such thing as a stranger. Whether or not we practice desire or wanting, 
or practice metta, loving-kindness, is totally up to us. This becomes our choice. It doesn't depend on anyone else. And this is part of the great freedom in our lives which comes from understanding our minds. It's important at this point to emphasize that when we start doing the matter, it's not that with the first phrase of goodwill all our desires fall away. Because it's not like that. Desire is a very powerful force in the mind and for a long time it's going to come up both independently and mixed in, mixed together with metta. And so we shouldn't be discouraged by that or blame ourselves or judgmental. This has been the conditioning that has taken place in us. What I want to emphasize is simply learning to see the difference. Learning to understand the distinction between these two states so then we can consciously practice and cultivate and develop the feeling of love. Something very significant happens as people do this practice. In the beginning, it is a practice. We are cultivating it, and it may feel mechanical and a little contrived at times. But what happens, first, as we recognize what the feeling of metta actually is, as opposed to the feeling of desire or wanting, and we practice and we cultivate it, we begin to see this transformation in our lives where metta is not something that we need to practice all the time, but it actually becomes more the way we're living. It becomes more the way we are than something we do. Okay, so this is the first desire, is the first of the great forces in the mind which can weaken metta. This is the near enemy. The second force in the mind which weakens the feeling of metta in us, or drives it out, is something called the far enemy. What the far enemy means is that it's not something that's close to metta and looks like it and masquerades as it. Rather, the far enemy is its opposite. It's the complete opposite of loving feeling, and that is the state of ill will, or aversion, or hatred. judging, judging ourselves, judging others. And when we look in our experience, we see that ill will or aversion has the effect, not like metta, of softening the heart, making it pliable, but actually of hardening the heart. Now what happens when we're filled with ill will is that there is a solidification of separation 
It's not a pleasant feeling. We really feel isolated and separated and alienated from other people, other beings. There are two forms of aversion, two forms this takes. One is a very strong and aggressive form. That is, aversion striking out as anger. You know, it strikes out in our thoughts, it strikes out in our speech, in our actions, and it's quite rough. I find it interesting to look at what it is that makes us angry. Where does where does a strong anger come from? Anger arises often when we think about someone who has done something harmful to us, or some, something harmful to someone we love. So we think about that, we think about the situation, and we get angry. It can be in the past, some past action. You'll probably have many examples of that arising during the retreat. It can be in the present, a present situation, and even quite amazingly, in terms of how the mind works, it can be about something that has not yet even happened. We can imagine somebody doing something harmful and get angry at the imagining. So it's just to see this, to see that this causes and conditions anger to arise. Anger also arises when somebody does something nice or loving to somebody we don't like. We see something good happening to an enemy (laughs) and we get angry. And the third way anger arises is that we personalize things which are in fact impersonal. And so you could think of it as a very inappropriate response. There are many examples of this, but one that comes to mind. Some years ago, Sharon and I were teaching in Europe, and we were staying in this hotel in London. And at two o'clock in the morning, the fire alarm goes off. We were on the fifth floor, and of course, during the fire alarm, you can't use the elevators. You know, so everybody kind of goes, has to go down to the lobby in various states of dress and undress, and it was interesting to see what different people had gathered up, you know, to take. And it was quite a surreal scene in the, in the lobby in London. Some people fully dressed and some people in their nightgowns and bathrobes. But that was okay. There was kind of a little bit of excitement to it. The next night, the same thing happened. And, and it turns out it was a false alarm. The second night when it happened, I was watching my mind. It wasn't so excited by it all. <laughs> I'm paying all this money, you know, for a decent night's sleep. Why can't they fix the fire alarm? And it's just, it was taking something as if they were doing it to me. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you've had that feeling sometimes on planes. You get on a plane and, you know, you're sitting on the runway and the and captain comes on. I'm sorry, there's a 
three-hour delay while they fix something or other. And it's just so interesting to see, okay, which channel is my mind going to, my mind going to tune in? Is it going to get annoyed and irritated and upset? Or will it just be accepting? So just to watch all this and to watch how the feeling of anger, of ill will, of irritation pushes metta out. When we're feeling ill will, there's no possibility for metta to be there, for loving kindness to be there. And we feel contracted, we suffer. One of the things that feeds this force of ill will in our minds, and I think it's a very prevalent conditioning that we have, are feelings in many situations of self-righteousness. Well, I should be angry. Why did that alarm go off the second night in a row? You know, whatever. Why is this person doing that? And we justify the feeling of anger or resentment and lock ourselves in to the power of that self-justification. I'd like to suggest an alternative to that. And it was powerfully expressed. You know, do you remember some years ago at different, different stages the, some of the hostages who were being held in Lebanon were released and one of them uh, was a British man named Brian Keenan. And as you probably remember, they were, they were held hostage in Lebanon for three, four, five to seven years, I think, in terrible conditions and deprivation, often abuse and torture. And this is what Brian Keenan uh, said when he was released, and it's really quite remarkable. He said, I feel no desire for vengeance. I feel no desire for retribution. I don't see those as positive. I don't see them as meaningful. I find those things self-maiming. And I do not intend maiming myself. There's tremendous understanding there just understanding of the nature of the mind, the nature of suffering, that even when conditions ostensibly would justify these feelings of revenge or retribution, or, he understood these are self-maiming. And he had no intention to maim himself. So to see how those feelings can push out the feeling of love, the feeling of metta. So the first kind of aversion is that is that strong aggressive striking out anger or hatred. There's another kind of aversion, another form that it takes, and it's called the, not the aggressive side of it, but the retreating side. That is, when aversion 
turns back into oneself or onto oneself and we feel it as grief, we feel it as sorrow, we feel it as resentment, like aversion turning back on oneself. And when these things get out of balance, when we lose balance, when we're overwhelmed by them, we become very contracted, we get out of balance, and we find that it's very difficult then to open to loving feelings. The stronger this far enemy of metta is in our lives, the stronger aversion and ill will, the more frequent, frequently it occurs, the more trouble, the more suffering there is for us. So we need to see this. We need to understand how it is that our lives are unfolding. What is the nature of happiness? What is the nature of suffering? Where is the path in all of this? So we've looked at the quality of metta, that softness and pliability of the heart, feelings of benevolence, of goodwill. We've talked about the enemies of metta, the near enemy, the far enemy, desire and ill will. So the question now, really it's the question of the retreat. How can we strengthen this feeling of loving kindness, of loving care, of compassion? How can we strengthen these feelings within us so they are not easily overwhelmed by their enemies? That's what our practice is to make this feeling strong, to make it stable, so that we are actually living in this space. Sharon mentioned briefly last night the principle, approximate cause for the feeling of metta to arise, and that is focusing on the good qualities in ourselves or other people. We need to recognize that we are all a package. We're all a package of qualities. You know, and there are things we like about ourselves and others and things we don't like. If we're trained to focus on what we don't like, it feeds judgment feeds aversion, it feeds fear. And so what we do is practice focusing on those qualities in ourselves, in other people, which are admirable, which are beautiful, which are loving. And again, it's not that we pretend that people are perfect, but it's a question of where we're choosing to focus our attention. One of the things I found through this practice is that by making a conscious effort to do this, the effort, and it is an effort often in the beginning, to sort of tune in to what's good in a person. But as we practice it, 
it becomes the natural way we relate to people. And it changes the nature of our relationship. How do we feel when we're relating to good qualities in people? We feel loving, we feel generous, we feel kind, we feel connected. How do people feel when that's the energy coming from us? Mostly they feel pretty good. They're nice back, which further strengthens our loving feeling. And so again, we start living in, you know, in the Tibetan, in the Tibetan Buddhism, they, they have a very sort of elaborate iconography and cosmology. And one of the, one of the things they talk about are Buddha fields. But it's a wonderful symbol. It's like through the power of metta, we start living, we create a Buddha field. That's the reality. That's the world we start creating in us and around us. So that's one way of practicing, strengthening this feeling of metta, of love. Another way is taking the time to see and understand other people's perspectives. You know, we so often are living in this huge delusion that our perspective is all of it. The way we see it is the way it is. I mean, it's so obviously not true. You know, and each one of us comes from a different background, different conditioning, different... We're all looking at our shared reality from a slightly different angle. You know, and this is the great power of art. It's actually revealing to us a landscape, sometimes very powerfully, from another perspective. Can we do that with, with each other? Can we see each other per, each other person as an artist? Their life is expressing a certain vision of reality. Can we step outside of our own for a moment and just open? I guess, well, what's that action about? Where is it coming from? So we're less locked in. We're more open. We're more expansive. We're more inclusive. Sometimes that requires opening to people's experience of suffering. I had one situation years ago when I first started teaching which taught me so much about this way of developing love and compassion, sort of a willingness to see more completely. There was one person who used to come to retreat early on. She came many times to many retreats. She drove me crazy. (laughs) Just her energy was so... (laughs) And we'd have interviews and it's like a 10-minute interview. It would seem like hours. And I would be trying, I would really be trying, okay, just you know, be patient, just be here and be present. 
But the behavior patterns were so obnoxious and so difficult. I just felt these walls go up. Well, this was going on for a long time. And I, certain, I, I kept on trying to understand what was really going on. At a certain point, something quite remarkable happened. She came in one day, and she sat down. And it was really for the very first time. I stopped simply reacting to her behavior, and I really looked at her. I just looked. I opened myself to seeing who she was. And what I saw was this tremendous amount of suffering. And it was so obvious when I was willing to look, when I was willing to see. And that all the behavior and all the things that I disliked so much were simply a manifestation or an expression of that huge amount of suffering that she was in. It was so beautiful because in that moment of my willingness to open and just to see and to be there, all that feeling of resistance and dislike and aversion in that instant, I felt so much love for this person. It was amazing. The connection was so strong and so deep. From every time she would come in from then, it was a feeling of love. It was a feeling of mental. And so it was just, it was a powerful lesson, one of many ongoing ones, where if we can let go of our own particular little viewpoint and really open to see, okay, where is this person coming from? What's happening? That itself becomes the cause for love to arise. from seeing the good qualities in people, from seeing things from other perspectives, from their perspective, from opening. Feelings of love and matter also come or are born from feelings of gratitude. Now, in our lives, there are many people who have done loving and helpful things to us, for us. They may be little things, they may be big things. And one of the happenings in meditation as we quiet down and open up, quite a natural process is not only do we start reliving all the old wounds and hurts and difficulties, we also start opening and reliving to all those moments of kindness, all those times of people being kind to us. If we don't overlook those moments, if we really hold them for a moment, there's a wonderful feeling of genuine gratitude. Gratitude is a beautiful feeling. That's an expression or that, that flowers into metta, into loving kindness. So we want to nurture those feelings. The last way that we develop metta is, of course, what we're doing here, doing it as a formal meditation practice. The Buddha spoke 
orphan of this practice. He placed a very high value on the development of loving-kindness, of metta. As with any practice, there there are basically two points to remember in doing it, which will serve you very well. One is to be patient. Let it unfold. There'll be a lot of ups and downs, times when you're feeling it, times when you're not feeling it. Be patient. It grows. Be patient and be continuous. That's the kind of effort you make. It's not a forced effort and it's not a struggle, but it's a certain dedication, it's a certain commitment. Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it softly and gently, but I'm going to do it. And see if you can carry that commitment throughout the day. It's not only in the sitting and walking period. Let your whole day be the cultivation of loving feeling. Like you're dropping these phrases of goodwill. Be happy. Be healthy. Live in safety. Be free. To close with part of a poem by a great New England poet, Galway Cannell. The poem is called Saint Francis and the Sow. really expresses the tremendous healing power of metta, of loving-kindness. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. So sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.